Life is a coming home. Salesmen, secretaries, coal miners, beekeepers, sword swallowers, all of us. All the restless hearts of the world, all trying to find a way home. It's hard to describe what I felt like then. Picture yourself walking for days in a driving snow. You don't even know you're walking in circles. The heaviness of your legs and the drifts. Your shouts disappearing into the wind. How small you can feel. How far away home can be. defines it as both a place of origin and a goal or destination. And the storm? The storm was all in my mind. Or as the poet Dante put it, in the middle of the journey of my life, I found myself in a dark wood, for I had lost the right path. Eventually, I would find the right path, but in the most unlikely place. Hello there. It's great to be with you again this weekend. Uh, I'm going to ask you to have your Bibles open to Isaiah chapter 40. And I know that over at Central Abbey and at Mission, you have already read this text, and that's great uh, because we're not going to read it in its entirety, uh, but we'll scroll through it. And even those of you watching at home, just remind you, encourage you to take a moment, maybe even press pause, read that text. But I wanted to start with that clip from Patch Adams, because I think it points to the deep-seated human desire in all of us, a desire to belong, a desire for home, a desire for a better place, a better set of circumstances, if you will, a longing for life as it was meant to be. And I bring that up because it is the question that our text today is really trying to answer. And the key verse in the middle of our text today is Isaiah 40, verse 27. Why do you say, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded from my God? You see, that question was being asked by people who were not at home. Uh, they were exiles. They were specifically captives of the Babylonian Empire. They had been conquered. They were oppressed. And they were homesick. And they're crying out, God, where are you? God, have you entirely forgotten us here in this land of captivity? So last weekend, I suggested that if you were to go out on the street of the city and ask people, what's the problem with the world? That the one answer that you probably would not hear from anyone is that there is no problem with the world. 
They would have their theories about what was wrong and how we might fix the, the, the problems of the world. Uh, some of you might be familiar with E3 Partners and their gospel presentation simply called The Three Circles. It's a, a really cool little gospel presentation that you can learn really quickly. You can draw it on the back of a napkin or a sheet of paper. So if you're talking with a friend and you're trying to explain what the gospel message is all about, it, it goes something like this. So you just draw three circles uh, on a piece of paper and connect them with a couple arrows. And then you've got the beginning of a gospel presentation. So that broken world that we talk about, you can start there by saying, you know what? We all live in this world that we know is not as it should be. It's broken. There's something wrong with it. And yet within every human heart, there is sort of this echo or this longing back to a world that was a better place, a longing for something different than this broken world that we live in. But in this broken world, we try a lot of things. We try to fix our problems. We try to fix them through the pursuit of education and success and status, maybe relationships, uh, drugs, sex, rock and roll. We fill our lives with pleasure. Uh, for some, it's finding that soulmate, that perfect partner. For some, it might even be religion. I'll fill my life with a little good works. I'll do some social justice. I'll, I'll, I'll recycle. I'll try to fix the world through my efforts. But what we find with all those efforts is that none of them ultimately satisfy us. And we go back to this echo, and what the scripture tells us is that God created us for a better place, a better world. That's the echo that's in your heart. But that our original mother and father, so if you draw a couple, you know, stick people up here, they ran away from God. We call it the fall or the rebellion, when we ran away from the world as it should be, and we came to this broken world, and this is what we end up with. That's a really great starting point for a gospel presentation because most people will not disagree with you about the broken world and about this echo in their heart for a better place. And then enters the gospel when you say, but God took it upon himself to solve this problem by sending his son Jesus to this earth. And there are three things about that Jesus story that you need to know about. The fact that Jesus took on human flesh and he came down and he lived among us that he lived a perfect life and then he went to the cross of Calvary and he laid down that life in sacrifice for your sin and for mine. And then he rose from the dead victorious over sin and death and the grave and he has made a way now for us to be right with God. What the scriptures call a new life, a new creation. You are born again unto new life. You're getting back to life as God created it and intended it to be. But of course, the question is, how do we get from the broken world to this rest restored world? And that requires that every one of us bend our knee in submission. Bend our knee in submission to Christ, to God the Father, and to say, you're right about me, Lord. You're right about my sin. You're right about my problems. And you're also right about the solution. And so I will choose to make you the Lord of my life. Just a really simple gospel presentation. You can see in it those elements. We talk about them a lot. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The, the key parts of the gospel, that if you can remember those four words, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, you can remember this story. And these three circles illustrate that in a way that might be helpful for you. But you know what? What this drawing, as simple as it is, 
points to are some of the profound truths about our lives, uh, illustrating for us this, this thought that there is a longing for our true home, a longing for a place to belong, a longing where the world was at right, if you will. And that we live our lives, even in this mess, trying to fix them with an echo in our heart of a different place, a different time, a different world. So much has been written on this topic. Uh, this inherent desire for something more, life as it should be. Uh, a longing in the human soul, uh, a true looking for home. Uh, in his book, Journey of Desire, John Eldridge puts it this way. He says, there's a secret set within each of our hearts. And it often goes unnoticed. We rarely can put it to words. And yet it guides us throughout the days of our lives. This secret remains hidden for most part in our deepest selves. It is the desire for life as it was meant to be. Now Solomon, when he was writing uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, he includes a, an interesting phrase in the middle of chapter 3. In chapter 3:11, when he says, God has set eternity in the hearts of mankind. That God has placed within us a knowledge of the holy, a knowledge of the other. Uh, it's why anthropologists tell us that no matter where they go in the world, whether it is the urban jungle or the literal jungles of the world, that whatever people group they bump into, they find a sense of the transcendent a sense of the other, a sense of the spiritual, that there is more to life than just what we see in the natural realm, in the here and now, because God has set eternity in the heart. C.S. Lewis is famous for this statement when he said, if I find myself, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world, something supernatural, and eternal. When our kids were little, we used to listen to a Christian entertainer called the Donut Man. Uh, do any of you remember the Donut Man? Uh, he had a, uh, a tagline song, life without Jesus is like a donut, like a donut, like a donut. Life without Jesus is like a donut. There's a hole in the middle of your heart. Catchy. Our kids got it. Or if you want some oldie goldies, if you want to roll back the time and rock and roll, just listen to the words, Bono and you too. I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Bruce Springsteen, everybody's got a hungry heart. Or if you want to pull up the Rolling Stones, I can't get no satisfaction. The second half of Isaiah, beginning in chapter 40, is written to comfort the people of God and to point them home, if you will. And specifically, chapter 40 addresses this thought that God might have forgotten me. So we need to remind ourselves where we began last week. Chapter 40 begins simply with these words, comfort my people, speak tenderly to them, cry out over them, and specifically talk to them about three things. Talk to them about the glory of the Lord, the word of the Lord, and the arm of the Lord. The glory of the Lord will be revealed. The word of the Lord is eternal, and the arm of the Lord, well, it's as though God the Father continues to say, look at these guns. My arm is not too short that I cannot save. Comfort my people. So specifically, remind yourself of who these people were. We mentioned it last week. They are the captives in Babylon. We capture a little bit of their emotion over in Psalm 137 when it's recorded like this. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. 
when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? You see, that was the emotion that these people were living with. And so if you want the big idea of Isaiah 40, it is the answer to that cry. And you might say it maybe in no better terms than simply this, God has not forgotten you. If you remember nothing else from Isaiah 40, perhaps it is this one idea, God has not forgotten you. Uh, what we see in this chapter is that the promises of the first 11 verses that we looked at last week, the promises about God's glory, about his word, and about his strong arm are validated as we come to understand who this God is in the next 14, 15 verses that we're going to look at in just a few moments. And not only does understanding who God is validate the message of comfort, but it is also a cure for the despondent heart. The heart that cries out, God, do you even see me? Am I invisible to you? Am I forgotten and disregarded by you? You see, that question in verse 27 is really the hinge point of this chunk of Scripture. What goes before it tells us that not only has God not forgotten you, but that he cannot forget you. And what comes after the question in verse 27 tells us not only can he not forget you, but he will not forget you. Isaiah uses a series of rhetorical questions to cause us to think about this, that God cannot and he will not forget us. So I asked you before, uh, at home, read the text. At Central and at Mission, you've already read the text, and we're just going to scroll through it. Uh, it's a big chunk, but grab a few phrases here and there. So in chapter 40, verse 12, he asks this question, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? As, as you look at that, you see the power and the might and the sheer scope and size of our God. Who measured out creation? He holds the seas, the waters in the palm of his hand. The mountains and the hills are weighed out in his scales and they're just like dust on the scales. He's got the whole world in his hands. Verse 13 and 14, who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? In other words, whom did God consult when he was thinking about creating the world? Who gives understanding and counsel to God? Now, there's a very similar conversation that takes place over in Job 38. It's actually one of my favorite Old Testament passages because Job is giving God a piece of his mind. Job, in essence, is crying out after all of his suffering and his three comforters have not been able to help him. He cries to God, in essence, says, God, where are you? Don't you see me? Don't you know that I'm here? Haven't you forgotten that you owe me an answer, God? And I'm right here. I'm waiting. I want to hear from you now. And God answers, Job 38, the Lord answered Job and said, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now listen to this next line. It's awesome. Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you 
when I laid the foundation of the earth. Now, this conversation goes on for four chapters, so we're not going to dig into it. But if you want a humbling and actually quite humorous weekend read, then just pull out Job 38 and read those next four chapters, and you listen to God going on a rant. Stand up and face me like a man, Job. You want to question me? Well, can you hold back the waves of the sea? Are you the one who commands the sunrise every morning? Have you entered into the storehouses of snow and hail? The clouds are my water skins. I simply tip them over and I flood the earth. Can you do that? Do you know when the mountain goats are about ready to give birth? Because I do. Who feeds the wild animals? Could you provide for the beasts of the field? Because I can. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? Who is this that's arguing with me? And then in chapter 40, Job 40, 4 to 5, you hear Job in a tiny little voice saying, Behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I, I lay my hand on my mouth. I've spoken once and I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. I'm sorry, God. I'm sorry. But God carries on for two more chapters, putting Job in his place, reminding him that he is mighty and that Job is tiny. That's precisely what Isaiah 40, verses 13 and 14 talk about. Who gave God counsel when he created the world? Now, verse 15 to 17, if you look at it, it says, Behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. All the nations are as nothing before him. How much significance does a single splash of water over the edge of the bucket have? A drop that spills out when you're carrying the water out to wash the car. You see, we've just come through a federal election here in Canada. You all know that. But frankly, what this text says, it doesn't really matter who wins or loses because this too shall pass. They will soon be forgotten. This government will come and another will go. Where are the Greek and Roman empires? Where are the Babylonians? Where are the Medes and the Persians? In fact, if you want to fast forward it more to a time that we remember, just in the last century, where is that great USSR, that great world power that was going to prove that communism had the answer to the world's problems, established right after World War I, and didn't even last a full 70 years, dissolving on Boxing Day in 1991? So much for a great world power. In comparison to the dignity and might of our God, they are like dust on a scale. Our God is mighty. Our God holds dominion over the world. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. And then look at verse 18 to 20. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? An idol? Really? You're going to hire a craftsman to mold you and shape you an idol or cut down a tree and form it and wrap it with gold and then worship it? Nothing and no one can compare to our God. Now, I'm not going to spend much time here because this is going to be a re recurring feature in the coming weeks. Basically, what Isaiah says is idols are stupid. Idols are no gods at all. And then look at that last chunk there from verse 21 down to verse 26. Do you not know? 
Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? And down to verse 25, to whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. Remind yourself of what you know to be true of what you've heard, of what you've known, of what you've understood, that God is big and that we are small. That our God is the one who sits enthroned above the earth, and as he looks down, we're just grasshoppers to him. In fact, he stretches out the Milky Ways and the galaxies of the universe, and so as you lift up your eyes on a starry night and you look out into the blackness and you see the millions of stars, remind yourself that God calls each of them by name and not one of them goes missing without his knowledge. Now ask yourself the question again of verse 27. This God who orchestrates the affairs of our daily lives, this God who created the world, who sets up and takes down governments, this God who names the stars and not one of them fall without his knowledge, do you think this God can honestly forget you? Even if he wanted to, he couldn't. And I say that because it would violate his very nature. Because the scriptures tell us that God is all-knowing. He knows absolutely everything. There is nothing that is hidden from him, including your life and mine. He sees, he knows, and he cares, which is critically important. Isaiah 49, I'll just jump ahead a few chapters. It, it raises the same question with a, a really delicate word picture. Uh, Isaiah 49, Zion says, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Same frame that we see here in chapter 40, 27. God's forgotten me. And then the Lord asks this question. Can a woman forget her nursing child? That she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I've engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now, let me state the obvious, that I have never been a nursing mother. That should be obvious. However, I am married to a woman who was a nursing mother, and so therefore, I know some stuff. If you do a little bit of medical research, you will find out that a nursing mother even if she was a horrible, terrible woman that really did want to forget about her child, that nursing mother cannot forget about her child. And why is that? Well, why is that is because of the physiological changes that have happened in her body. Because of the hormones that are released after birth that cause milk production. And if that milk is not released, she finds herself in pain as her body begins to cry out to her, find that child, find that child, it is feeding time. And so God uses a very intimate illustration to say, even if a nursing mother could forget her child and her body won't let her forget that child, I can't forget you, I won't forget you. And so look again there at chapter 40, verse 27. Why do you say my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Why indeed? Well, it's because the people to whom this was written originally and 
to us as well that we are not at home. We are exiles. We don't truly belong here. And we grow weary in the battle. Standing up against the tide of culture all around us grinds us down and you find yourself saying, I'm exhausted. I just want to escape. How long, O oh Lord? How long will you let this go on? And that refrain from Psalm 137, how are we supposed to sing the songs of the Lord in this God-forsaken land? How long can we keep on praising when it seems like the world around us is just radically messed up? The next few verses in Isaiah 40, from Isaiah 40, 28 to 31, and these I want to read in its entirety. It says, Have you not known... Have you not heard the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth? He doesn't grow faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You could read all of the attributes of God that we have read in this chunk of scripture and you could still come to a wrong conclusion. You see, as you scroll back through this chapter, you could say, this God is too great. He is too mighty. He is too big to care about my little life and my little problems. That would be a wrong inference from good theology. The right inference from all this great theology in Isaiah 40 is, he is too great to fail. Not that he is too great to look at my little life, but he is too great to fail me. Not only cannot he forget, but he will not forget. You see the rhetorical question there in verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? And the answer, of course, is yes, you have. Remind yourself of what you already know to be true, the things that you have been taught, the things that you have heard, the things that you have recounted in your mind. All the promises of who God is and what he has done, who we are as a result of the work of Christ and how we live in response to it. It, it, it assumes, and Isaiah assumes, and we assume today of this audience, that you have put your roots down deeply into the word of God. And that even in the scorched desert places of life that we can drill down deep into the wells of God's truth. And so we know that God is such. He is eternal, creator, untiring, unceasing, everlasting. We know that God is such that he never runs out of time or energy or resources. We know that God is such that he never abandons his purposes in order to go take a nap. We know that God is such that he is everlasting. He knows the beginning from the end and he is patiently working out his purposes even when we are impatient. And what does he promise? Well, the promises are beautiful. This is a very popular chunk of Isaiah. He promises power to the weary. When you're dragging at the end of the day under life's pressure, he promises to give you strength to those who have no might 
Uh, when we're thinking, I can't lift this load on my own, uh, I, I, the illustration that popped into my brain this week was when you feel like a boneless chicken, God gives you some backbone. And the reason that popped into my brain was because that word for strength is literally the word for the skeletal structure, for the bones of our body, that God will strengthen you, that he will give you some backbone, that he will put some bone into that boneless chicken. In other words, here's some spiritual calcium for your soul. God will strengthen you. Even youth get tired. Even young men, the young men referred to here, were at the prime of their life. But those who wait and trust and hope in the Lord will find strength renewed. Keep coming back to this well. It never runs dry. And so Isaiah 40 verse 27 tackles the greatest battle zone over our lives, and that is the battle of despondency. This thought that I just can't seem to believe that God is good in this moment. And Isaiah points to a prevailing mood among the people of God. Why are you so downcast? What is it about human nature that makes complaining so much easier than praising? That makes cynicism easier than optimism? that makes suspicion easier than hopefulness, that makes skepticism easier than trust. Why are we so given to a despondent heart? Now, even right now, because I know how the enemy works, even right now, you might be hearing a voice in your head saying to you, God has forgotten you. Forget about this preacher. Forget about Isaiah. You know the truth. God doesn't care. He doesn't really see you anymore. And what you need to know and understand is that that voice in your head is the voice of the accuser. Because we're told in Romans 8, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if you're hearing that voice of accusation, that voice of condemnation, that voice of despondency, you can recognize it, that it is not God's voice. It is actually Satan's voice. And so what did Jesus do when Satan came a lion to him? Well, he answered him with the truth. And so we too need to answer him with the truth. We need to remind him, I am not who you say I am, Satan. I am not who the world tells me that I am. I am not even who I myself might want to say that I am. My identity has been given to me. My identity has been bestowed on me by my heavenly father. I am who he says I am. That's my identity. And remind him, remind that enemy, remind the accuser of what God says about you. Let me just show, uh, let me just throw out like just a handful. There are dozens and dozens of these promises. Let me just bullet point through four or five of them. Matthew tells us, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. 1 Corinthians 6 says you're a temple of God, that his spirit and his life dwells in you. 2 Corinthians 5 says you are a new creation. Ephesians chapter 2 says you're God's workmanship, that you're born anew in Christ to do God's work. Philippians says you're a citizen of heaven. You're seated in heaven right now. And 1 Peter says you're an alien and stranger to this world in which you temporarily live. And 1 John tells us this, you're born of God and therefore the evil one, the devil, cannot 
touch you. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens more of these promises. And as a result of these promises, there are tons of things that are true about you. And they're true about me. Romans 8 says you're free forever from condemnation. No one can condemn you. Who is he that condemns? Jesus asks. 1 Corinthians 2 says you have been given the mind of Christ. Colossians 1 says the debt against you has been canceled. 2 Timothy says that you've been given a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. And Hebrews says you have the right to come boldly before the throne of God to receive mercy and find grace in time of need. All of those things are true about you because your life is hidden in Christ. And so when Satan whispers, God has forgotten you, you need to remind Satan of what God says about you. You see, there's an echo in the human heart that longs for life as it was meant to be. It's a call to come home. Home, which is both a place of origin where we came from, and a place of destination, what we were created for. And your heart's true home is to find rest in God the Father through His Son, Jesus Christ. John Eldridge gives this poignant comment, however, that something awful has happened, something terrible Something worse even than the fall of man, for in that greatest of all tragedies, we merely lost paradise. And with it, everything that made life worth living. What has happened since is unthinkable. We've gotten used to it. We're broken into the idea that this is just the way things are. The people who walk in great darkness have adjusted their eyes. In other words, we know the world's broken and we've just settled and figured that this is just how life is. Friend, if that is you, I need to invite you to refocus your eyes once again, to lift them above the fo foggy darkness of life as we see it in the here and now to rise above the horizons of this land in which we are simply sojourners in, that we do not ultimately belong here, and that if you remember nothing else, that you remember this in answer to that question, where are you, God? How could you have forgotten me? How have you disregarded me? That this answer is this, that God cannot forget. He has not forgotten you. He cannot, and he will not forget you. I'd like to pray with you and for you. So, Father, you know those who are listening to this message. You know those who are sitting at home with their family or sitting all alone. You know those who are in our campuses there in Central Abbotsford and over in Mission. And, Father, the amazing thing is that you know every single individual personally and intimately, as this text tells us. As the Creator, as the all-knowing one, you know exactly what is going on in each person's heart and mind and in their life. And Father, for that person that this week is in that season where they have been wondering, has God forgotten me? I pray that you would anchor them back to the truths of your word, that the God that we understand, the God who is all-knowing, the loving, all-powerful creator is also the one who comes near. He is transcendent, he is great, and he is powerful, and yet he is imminent. 
like a shepherd who tenderly takes those lambs up onto his lap. He comes near. So Lord, if there's even one man or one woman this weekend who needs to be reminded that they have not been forgotten by their God, then this message is worth it. So Lord, seal that in our hearts and minds for your glory and for our great joy. In the name of Jesus, amen.